In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 17, there's a statement that is mentioned about Saul that I would like for us to spin off of this morning. In verse 17, it said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? If you'd like to turn also to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. There's similar language to that that is mentioned of Nebuchadnezzar. The statement that is made of Saul is so profound because when God chose him, Saul was little in his own eyes and God was big. It wasn't soon after that, however, that things changed. And Saul became big in his own eyes and God became little. But in Daniel chapter 4, when you look at verse 30, it says, The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for honor and majesty, honor of my majesty? Do you hear what he's saying? Is not this great Babylon that I have built for dwelling for my mighty power and honor of my majesty? And then verse 32, And they shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, seven times shall pass over you, until you know the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and give it to whomever he chooses. Do you get the switch in that? In verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar is boasting of himself. But in verse 32, God is telling Nebuchadnezzar he's going to be brought low. Drop down to verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and noble resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellence and majesty was added to me. Now then, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways are justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way, didn't he? When Saul was little in his own eyes, and Nebuchadnezzar concludes, those who walk in pride, God will put down. Would you not agree that one of the greatest challenges that we face as people is the very struggle that Saul faced and the very struggle that Nebuchadnezzar had? That at some point in time in our life, we may view ourselves as being small, but through the process of time, various reasons, we begin to feel full of ourselves and lifted up, and we begin to diminish the size of God and elevate the size of ourselves. Pride 
begins to rule and humility begins to abate. If I were to give a definition of humility, it would be what is said of Saul when he was little in his own eyes. Humility is being little in our own eyes and God being great in our eyes. But when it is reversed and we become little, God becomes little in our eyes and we become great, we then face the plight that Nebuchadnezzar faced. We may not be brought low to have to eat the beast, eat like a beast of the field. But sooner or later, we're going to learn the hard lesson. Pride goes before a fall, and a haughty spirit will God will destroy. And we learn that pride is an abomination to the Lord. If selfishness is the bane and launching point of all sin, then pride has to be the very next friend that sits right by that. Because if one is little in their own eyes and God is great, then humility will reign and God is big. But if it's the reverse, selfishness rules and pride motivates that. Now, having said that, there is a necessity for a proper respect of ourselves. Two passages. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, it is said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor, but he doesn't stop there. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The second passage is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. That a husband is to love his wife as he loves himself. So a proper self-confidence, a proper self-esteem is essential to loving our fellow man as essential for husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And so when we talk about being little in, in our own eyes and God being great, that does not diminish the fact that what we need is also a healthy respect for ourselves. Yes, Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, a man ought not to think too highly of himself. But did you notice the foundation of that passage? In order not to think too highly of ourselves, that must first of all mean we think highly of ourselves. But we don't think more highly of ourselves than we think of God. We have self-confidence and a proper self-respect and proper self-esteem, but still we remain little in the eyes of God. And God remains great in our eyes. Humility, being little in the eyes of God, does not demand, does not demand that I view myself as no greater or higher than a worm. Being little in my own eyes does not demand self-deprecation and self-destruction. Being little in our own eyes does not demand self-condemnation in order to put oneself down. Humility says this, while being little in, in my own eyes, I also recognize how great I am. That may seem contradictory until, until we see 
how great God says we are. God did not die on the cross or send his son on the cross to die for worms. God sent his son to die on the cross for lost man. Why? Because God highly prized man. God breathed life into man and put his soul in man. It is said of man that he's made in God's image. It's not said of a worm he's made in God's image. Man is made in the image of God, therefore man was made for greatness. Man is the zenith, the apex, the, the highest point of all of God's creation. Everything else in the first five days is to make this earth habitable for God's prize, man. And he put man in that garden, a special garden. That's how highly he prized him. He put him in a special garden that he was to keep in the tent all of his life. And not until sin did sin enter in that man began to then begin falling off in his own eyes and becoming great instead of being small in his eyes. Humility demands that I remain little in my own eyes, but yet recognize how great I am to God. And my fellow man is right there. Humility says, I recognize I'm great before God because he created me and he died for me, but I also recognize you're great before God because God created you and he also elevated you. Therefore, I'm going to put you first and myself second. But Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, in honor giving preference one to another. That's just not saying, let me open the door and can you see how proud I am of opening the door for you? No, what that says is, I recognize I'm little in my own eyes. I recognize how little you are in your own eyes before God. But that doesn't mean I put you down or I put you less. Being humble, I also exalt you. I also elevate you. So pride, being little in our own eyes, is essential, is essential as we stand before God and also as we interact with our fellow man. In fact, when we think about that, and we think about how pride can be used properly, turn to Second Chronicles with me. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 17. The story is told here about Jehoshaphat. And the statement is made in verse 6. Second Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 6. And his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. Did you get that first part? His heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. That's a man who is little in his own eyes. Paul will say this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. When man is proud of the gospel and proud of God, then man will keep himself in proper perspective. Saul failed to do that. Saul became great in his own eyes. Saul partially obeyed God. Why? Because that's what Saul 
wanted to do. If it had been something else that God wanted him to do, and Saul had obeyed, that had been nothing because Saul would have done what he wanted to do still. Saul did what he wanted to do instead of what God wanted him to do. He did not finish the task God made him, God assigned for him, in killing and slaying all the Amalekites. He took what he wanted because that's what he wanted to do. Submission, submission is not, I do what I want to do. Submission is, I remain little in my own eyes before God, and I do what he wants me to do, whether I want to do that or not, because he is great in my eyes. Saul failed. James will say it this way, if we stumble at any point, we are guilty of being violators of the whole law. You know, if you're a cattleman, you've got a fence. And part of your fence is down. Only one section of your fence is down. And the rest of the pasture is fenced in, but that one section is down. It just will be the whole fence down. Because what's going to happen? The cows are going to find that one opening there. Well, he says you violate the law at one point, you have become guilty of sinners. Why? Because that one point is that breach by which we go through and we go our own way. In 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14, notice the relationship that Paul has with the, with the Corinthians here and how he speaks of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Backing up to verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, the testimony of our conscience, that we conduct ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by grace of God, more abundantly toward God. For we're not writing any other thing to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you'll understand even to the end as also you have understood us, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Did you see that? That we, Paul, his fellow apostles, are what? Are your boast. And that you, Corinthians, are our boast. Do you see the reciprocation there, the reciprocity? Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are proud of us. And we are also proud of you. You see, we have a proper perspective of humility. It also elevates not just God in our eyes. It also elevates our fellow man in his eyes. And I repeat for emphasis sake, love thy neighbor as thyself. Could it be that sin and rebellion are byproduct of pride and the putting down of our fellow man is right there with it? John will say in 1 John chapter 3, if a man says he hates his brother, he is a murderer and hath not the love of God in him. Now, how is it that you can assign a man who hates his brother to be a murderer? He hasn't slain him. You can't convict him. You can't give him the death penalty. You can't put him in prison for it. You can't even impose any penalty for him because he hasn't slain his brother. Cain began with hatred. And he said, if we do that, if we hate our brother... We have the same heart Cain had. Cain had a heart of a murderer, and the man who hates his brother has the heart of a murderer. 
And so if we want to elevate our fellow man, then we have the same love for our fellow man God has for man. How much love did God have for man? Did God elevate man? Did God make the, the opportunity to elevate man? Or did God continue to squash man under his heel? I conclude that the only reason I do not offend you or I don't hurt you or don't take your life is because you're not worth the trouble. Or, if it weren't for some high penalty to pay, you wouldn't be worth the buckshot it'd take to shoot you. What restrains me from doing that? Some penalty. I don't want to pay the price for having hurt you or maligned you in some way or assaulted you in some way that, that misfigures you. No, he says, if we have the love of God, we're going to have the love of our brother too. We can't have our hearts lifted up with pride, putting our brother down and have the heart of Christ. Paul said, you are our boast and we are yours. In the latter part of the book, just a reference point. Paul tells the Corinthians, while he is fighting the Judaizers who are now attacking his apostleship, it's not personally that Paul's trying to defend himself. Paul's trying to defend his apostleship because to, to assault the apostleship of Paul was to assault God who assigned him that apostleship. And so Paul's not taking this personal. But he's not going to let them also insult God by insulting his apostleship. But in doing so, he tells them, I keep telling Titus, I keep telling Titus how good you are. I keep telling Titus all the good things you have done. Now, don't disappoint me. Don't let me down. Don't make me look like a fool for having bragged about you. I've done all I can to help you, and you have listened to this point. Paul was concerned. Did they receive the first letter well? And finally, Titus shows up and said, Paul, everything's great. They got it. And Paul says, now I can go with love. I don't have to go with a rod. I didn't want to go with a rod to begin with. And then he says, I've been telling everybody how good you folks are. Don't disappoint me. We do that. When Jordan and I travel. One of the great joys we have is telling people about this congregation. It's kind of like a grandparent showing somebody else the pictures of the grandkids. How, how many do you want to see? How long do you want to sit and listen to me? I'll tell you how, about the, how great this congregation is. I'll tell you about these people. It's the same thing a parent with a child. We talk to our children. We talk to our children about how we speak to them with others. We tell others how good our children are. And then we say, now, don't disappoint me. Don't let me down. I have bragged on you. You see what Paul did with the Corinthians? Paul lifted them up. Paul boasted about them. But Paul could boast about them because God was great in his eyes and he was still little in his own eyes. But I think about putting flesh on the bones. How to make this come alive for us. I turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Look at Philippians chapter 2 when we think about growing in littleness. You begin in verse, verse 1 
which is kind of actually the last part coming first. Because once you get verses 5 to 11, you go back to verses 1 through 4, and now it makes sense. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Let each look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Pause. An individual filled with pride will not do those things. An individual filled with pride is going to consider their concern greater than the other. A person filled with pride is not going to be lonely in mind to elevate others. And so Paul says, let me see if I can get you to see this in real time. So he begins this way in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. What mind? Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What did Christ do? Christ humbled himself to humanity. He humbled himself to humanity even to the point of death. Did Christ, did Christ do that through conceit or selfish ambition? Did Christ do that through pride and high esteem of himself? Or was Christ looking out for the interest of others? Look at the, look at the journey he took here. Don't you see the journey? This journey is incomprehensible. It's immeasurable, the journey that he took. Look at what he says who being in the form of God, I wish I could explain that to you. I don't understand that. You think about, in beggarly terms, the glory, the majesty of being in heaven with God, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and you think about being at the right hand of God, you think about being in the presence of the Father, the Holy Spirit, throughout eternity. You think about being there. Here is pristine holiness, pristine purity. He's in the form of God. Whatever that is, he's there in glory and majesty. Why would anybody want to leave that glory and majesty to come to this hellhole? But what did he do? He took on the form of a servant. He didn't come in the form of God and said, let me tell you, I'm God, how great I am. He left all the glory and majesty and came and subjected himself in the form of a servant. Well, I may not be able to explain what the form of God is, but he illustrated to us what the form of a servant is. But for three years, his disciples are arguing about who's going to be gracious in the kingdom of God. Every one of those men with their name in neon lights. Listen. The other ten were not upset at Peter and John because Peter and John had elevated themselves. 
But they brought Mama Zebedee with them, and Mama De Zebedee spoke for her baby boys and said, these are good boys. Will you please let one sit on your right and one sit on your left? Why did she do that? Because that's what mamas do. Mamas, your child is the greatest child in the world. And that's as it should be. And she's going to tell the Lord how great James and John are. And it says the others were angry with them. They were angry because James and John beat them to the punch. They were going to do the same thing. And so Jesus says, okay, for three years I've been trying to teach you boys about this. I've been trying to tell you who's greatest. I've tried to illustrate that by taking on the form of a servant. So while they're all arguing about this, Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 24, Jesus gets up, girds himself, takes a towel, pours water in a basin, and begins one by one to wash their feet. He comes to Peter, and Peter, in great pomposity, in great arrogance, says, Not my feet, Lord. Peter, why did you say that? Because great men don't wash the feet of little men. And when I get to be a great man, I'm not going to wash the feet of little men. And the Lord says to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you're through. And in typical, impetuous fashion, with Peter, it's kind of like Brill Cream. Sorry, I know it's a daddy commercial. A little dabble do you. As far as Peter's concerned, a little dabble do you, Lord, not my feet, my whole body only. And the Lord said, hey, Peter, back off, buddy. I just am going to wash your feet. That's enough. And he goes down the line and eventually takes the form of a servant to wash the feet of the very man who the next day is going to betray him. Would I do that? If I knew you stuck a knife in my back, would I then stoop myself to say, let me wash your feet? Do you see what Christ was doing? He was elevating them, taking the form of a servant. And so it continues on then in what he says here in Philippians chapter 2. He says, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Be obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross. If the distance from heaven to earth was immeasurable, leaving the majesty and glory of heaven, he left perfect holiness to come to a sin-stained earth. He left time immeasurable to come to a continuum of time. He came and he submitted himself to obedience even unto death, which means he demonstrated obedience even in the dying. Think about his life. From birth, it is said of him, Is this not Joseph the carpenter's son? Of pride and wealth, he will say, Boxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not a place to lay his head. Of respectability, it is said. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Of popularity, it is said. There's no form or comeliness. Of reputation, it is said. He's a friend of sinners. Of learning, it is said. I know nothing. 
except what my father learned teaches me. Of superiority, he said, he that is greatest is a servant. Of success, he says, I can't of my old self do nothing. Of self-will, he says, it's not my will, but thine. Of intellect, he says, I speak not of myself, but I speak the words of the Father. Of obedience, he says, even to death. See what it is to be little in our own eyes? That makes us like Christ. In fact, one of the keys to entrance in the kingdom of heaven begins with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not blessed are those who have a bankrupt account. That's blessed are those who are bankrupt in heart. Because what we're talking about is not appearance this way. What we're talking about is appearance that comes from the heart. In 1 Peter chapter 3, of that meek woman, he's not denigrating how she should appear outwardly, but she, it says of her that she has a meek and quiet spirit. She's little in her own eyes before God. So when you think about that, what he says is, when we are poor in spirit and we remain little in our own eyes, we are having the mind of Christ. Only the humble will bow themselves to obedience. Only the humble will acknowledge their weaknesses, their faults, and their mistakes. Only the humble will come to God because he will not have the proud. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar learned. A question. If Jesus were to have my humility, would he have died on the cross? If Jesus were to have my humility, would the opportunity for salvation, all lost man, be available today? Let this mind be in you which is in Christ. Folks, we must fight against elevating ourselves in the eyes of one another and even our old selves when we look in the mirror. We must continue to fight and be little in our own eyes while maintaining the self-respect that's demanded to love God and to love others and husbands and love our wives. No man will succeed who's lifted up with pride but did you notice in Philippians chapter 2, he's also been highly exalted. God says, the proud I resist, but the humble I will exalt in rates. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.